Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and we're doing another Blue Collar Bible Scholar, and today we are in the book of Joshua, Yeshua, Yehoshua. This is actually Jesus' name. The name of Jesus is Yeshua, or Yehoshua, and it's uh, Salvation of the Lord. So it's kind of fitting that Joshua is the guy that actually leads his people into the Holy Land. Into the Promised Land, across the Jordan. That's why you have a lot of uh, river imagery in old hymns and stuff. Promised Land being uh, a type of heaven, a new heaven and new earth, things to come. Good afterlife promises that God made. And uh, it's not imagery about crossing the river Styx, but rather crossing the Jordan to go into the Promised Land. Is the, uh, the reason all those old hymns mention rivers and such. Yeah, or, or baptism. River baptisms were pretty common in the, uh, on the frontier, frontier churches and stuff. So, Book of Joshua, this is... The uh, first book of the Old Testament that is not in the Pentateuch. And it is also the first book of the Bible written by somebody other than Moses. It's written by Joshua, the guy for whom the book is named. This is Moses' understudy. The uh, If you remember the story from back in... Uh, numbers, and it gets repeated in Deuteronomy and stuff. Twelve spies went into Canaan, ten were bad, and two were good. From uh, the old kid's song. The two spies that said, yes, we can take the land, let's go get them. God's with us. That was Caleb and Joshua. The ten spies, the other, the rest of the guys, I think they get named, but it's not worth it right now. They told everybody, oh, there's giants, and we're scared, and they made everybody scared, and they didn't want to go, and God's like, fine, I'll kill this generation by making you wander in the desert until you die of old age at 65-ish, which is exactly what happened to everybody. So, Joshua and Caleb both are kind of on in years by the time they're coming back to the promised land. Caleb was 40 when he was a spy, we'll find out at the end of the book of Joshua, and uh, so that makes him like 80 now. And uh, I think I think they mentioned his age. Joshua was like 65 at this point. Everybody pictures Joshua as this strapping young man getting a pep talk from God right at the beginning of the book. And hey, he's an old guy. On in years, right? They wandered in the desert for 40 years, and he was older than 20 at the start of it. He's got to be like 60, 65. He's younger than Caleb. So, we might get actual numbers. I don't remember exactly. All right. So, previously on Pentateuch, Moses died. God brings him up to a mountain and allows him to die. And Moses is buried. Nobody knows where. It's a mystery. It's a secret to everyone. The... Moses' understudy is picked by God himself. God tells Moses, Joshua, Joshua will be the man to lead my people after you. So there's a bit of a ceremony. 
um, kind of passing of the torch, metaphorically speaking, and Moses goes off. Joshua's now in charge. He's big man on campus. And the first chapter, most of it, is a pretty awesome stirring pep talk from God. Saying, uh, only be strong and of good courage. I'm with you. I will go before you in the land. I will fight for Israel. Only be strong and of good courage. And Joshua's the man. He's one of the few characters in the Bible who basically doesn't mess up. Almost everybody in the Bible, they, they screw up. One, one way or another. Just all over the place. Joshua is the one guy, his one mistake was being nice. The uh, we'll, we'll get to it, but he, his one mistake was just being a little naive and uh, not being quick enough to ask God. Now, the date, of course, we are, the, the exodus happened. At about 1440 BC, they're wandering around in the desert for 40 years. It's now about 1400 to the late 1300s BC, because BC goes backwards, right? We're getting more recent. So when they date, when they started the dating system, uh, I, some Franciscan monk somewhere in the Middle Ages, uh, if I remember correctly, started at year zero at Jesus. All of history is centered around Jesus Christ. He places year zero at the birth of Christ, near as he could reckon. A, currently, we're guessing he was born about 4 to 6 BC. But the guy thought year zero, who knows, right? I wasn't there, you weren't there, you don't know. Nobody knows. But our best guess, so his best guess was zero BC. He made that zero and then counted backwards from Jesus, BC before Christ. And then counted forward from Jesus, AD, Anno Domini, year of our Lord. We are currently... In the kingdom of God, Christ reigns and is being patient, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For God is not slow, as men count slowness. I'll reverse the order of that verse. It's in uh, Peter chapter 3-ish. First, uh, yeah, First Peter chapter 3. So, then uh, we are in thirteen, late 1300 BC. I, I take the traditional dates and authorship. And I'm not going to argue it. He is going to lead everybody in the promised land. He's taken over. Um, and, of course, the purpose of the book is written is to just tell the story, record history, record what happened. That's why it's not engaging. That's why it's not a, an exciting read. This tends to be a little bit of an exciting book, though, because it's battle after battle after battle. And uh, it's kind of stirring. Also, an interesting tidbit, most of your claims of genocide from godless heathens will come from this book. Alright, here we go. I already said, as we open up, Joshua's in charge of the people of God. Moses shuffled off this mortal coil after handing over the torch. Joseph was chosen by God specifically to lead the people right now at this time, which is pretty heavy. Uh, it's just fascinating, though, because you would expect, as uh, from an earthly perspective, Moses to have one of his sons lead, or Moses would choose his successor, God chose him. And God said, Moses, this guy's going to do it. That's interesting. So, I say so too often. The uh, outline starts right out with 
God's pep talk, the whole first chapter, God's given Joshua the coolest pep talk ever. Just just sit down and read it. It's it's stirring. It's awesome. Then they jump right into let's go. Joshua sends a couple of spies over the river to uh, Jericho, is the first city. Right as you get across the Jordan River, they're on the far side of the Jordan River. Two spies go into Jericho. Well, see, 10, 12 spies went, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Joshua's like, look, we're just going to cut to the chase. I'm only sending two good spies. We're done. And the reason they sent the spies ahead was just, you don't have maps. They don't have Google Earth. They don't know where anything is. They know they're going to cross a river. Joshua's like, it's been 40 years, guys. I don't exactly remember my way around the Beltway. So they're they're going into the land to just scout it out. Where do the roads lead? What are the towns named? Where are the towns at? How many towns are there? I don't know, right? It's not like there's a, a guy selling maps to the stars' houses right outside of the, uh, the gas station. So they go out, and we get... Uh, we get a fun little uh, anecdote where these guys are stuck in Jericho and somebody's, this this is known, everybody knows the Israelites are coming. The Israelites are coming, right? They've, they've been wrecking everybody they show up to. This just wandering kingdom of vagabonds just strolling on foot, coming up out of the desert. No real king leading them. They just know they like wandered out of Egypt and left Egypt in ruins, having killed the heir to the throne and destroyed most, if not the entire army. They've been gone for like 40 years and they show up out of the desert like a ghost and they're just murdering everybody. You've got these kingdoms that are ruled by a giant. Their king is a warrior giant, a son of Anak. Of the Anakim. Og of Bashan. And he just gets trounced. He gets trashed by these short little desert vagabonds. Who just roll up and they're like, hey, we're going to win now. And there's a story in a moment that gives us an indication of this. But I'm going to claim it now. They haven't lost anybody in any of the battles. They don't take casualties. They just win. And it's terrifying to everybody. And God specifically states, I've sent... Uh, dread before you, or sent uh, terror before you in the land. So everybody's on edge and panicking, and they somehow get these guys made as spies when they're in Jericho. Uh, they're on the run, and they wind up in a uh, prostitute's house in Jericho. Her name is Rahab. And they're like, hey, you gotta hide us. And she's like, hey, I know where you're from. I know what you are. And, uh, I know what you guys are about to do, because you've done it to, like, five kingdoms right now. I'm on your side. And they go, all right, hide us. And she goes, okay, I will. She hides them in, uh, up on our roof in some, some straw bundles or whatever. Guards come by, and they say, hey, were there two men? We saw them enter. And they go, oh, no, she, uh, they just left right as the gates closed. They're probably wandering in the dark in the desert right now. I think they said they were headed north or south or whatever. She sends the guys off in the opposite direction that these guys are actually going to be headed to get back to. I think it was east and west. Um, but they're, they're actually going to leave and go back to the Israelites. So she sends the guys, the guards off in the wrong direction. And uh, the guys are like, thank you so much. And she says, hey, just spare me because you guys are going to wreck this place. Everybody knows about you and your God wandering up out of the desert, wrecking everybody. 
I just want to be on the winning team. And they said, okay. Everybody, you need to hide inside of your house. You need to let us down on a, uh, on a rope. So she lets him down on a rope, and they say, hey, look, this rope, leave it hanging out your window so we know which house is you. Anybody from your family who comes outside of your house, it's their blood's on their own head, right? It's on them. They, they weren't smart enough to stay to stay safe. But if anybody in your house dies while they're inside of your house, we'll answer for it. We're going to keep your family safe as long as they stay in this house, and you keep your house marked by this rope. She's like, done. So they, they climb out, they sneak back over, they tell Joshua the skinny, and he's like, cool, we're going, guys. And uh, they cross the Jordan, which is a, a big deal. We're crossing another body of water. It's a little smaller, a little less awesome. Uh, but it's still kind of a big deal because it was, uh, if I remember correctly, the time of year this would be placed at is also most likely like flood season. So it's not a little trickle. The Jordan River changes per the time of year. They've got it tapped off into irrigating farms and stuff now so much. It's it's almost non-existent. They're, they're, so the Dead Sea was fed by the, the Jordan. It runs all the way down, goes into the Dead Sea, and then doesn't go anywhere. So all the salt and uh, mineral runoff from the river just collects there in the Dead Sea. That's why it's dead. Too much salt. So right now they irrigate they're, they're irrigating, so they're pulling all that river water off to make farmland, and it's depleting the river. But back then, it was full, nobody's irrigating off of it, and it was the time of year where uh, all of the, the river's going to swell up from all the excess rainwater and stuff. If I, re- if I remember correctly, I might be a little off on that. So, the way they cross, the, the Levites pick up the Ark of the Covenant... And they, they run ahead of everybody. So Because remember from... Do, no, from Numbers, there's an order that everybody's supposed to march out in. And all the different camps, all the different tribes are supposed to march out in a very specific order. I'm spending a lot of time in the first couple chapters because the whole back half of the book is just a list of places. The, the priests... Uh, and Levites are supposed to be in the middle of the camp, right? You've got the forward guard, the rear guard, the two flanks. God's in the middle. And uh, they're, they're sending, uh, they send the Levites out first. And they don't set a foot in water. They walk right out in the middle of the river. The Ark of the Covenant walks right out into the river. Boom, water stops, parts, and walk on dry ground. Don't get hung up on the details of how this happened. God made the universe. The point is, it happened. The place for science is to discover and to discuss how the world works, how God made the world, and how physics and all of this wonderful stuff. When God does a miracle, it's a miracle, guys. You don't need to talk about, well, the river drying up, or it, was the, it wasn't the rainy season, or it was the whatever. Or... Guys, it's a miracle. That's why they're miracles. Nobody would have been astonished if the river just trickled up because it was the dry season. They would have been like, oh, it's the dry season. Why are they standing out there with their shiny gold box? <laughs> Idiots. These guys were terrified. Okay? Everybody was afraid of them with good cause. Quick side note, something I forgot to mention earlier, but gets mentioned consistently in Deuteronomy and comes up, I think, a couple times in Joshua here, is that God 
chose Israel and then specifically states several times that they are not inheriting the land because of how good they are. They're inheriting the land because the Canaanites are awful human beings and are being ejected from the land. It has nothing to do with how great the Israelites are. It's just that the Canaanites suck. God chose them, and they're only special in as much as they were chosen by God. They inherited the land because the previous owners decided they didn't want it anymore by doing nothing but committing horrible atrocities and fornications on it. So the whole nation of Israel then kind of crosses the Jordan, but they got to walk around the priests as they do it the whole time. They get right on the other side of the Jordan, and while the priests are still holding the water back, they were told to pick up... They did like a two-fold thing. They took stones from the riverbed, and then... I jumped to the turn lane way too early. They took stones from the riverbed, and then made an altar with them, but then they also took stones and put them in the riverbed in the altar, if I remember correctly. It was a little weird and odd how they worded it, but there are two memorials. One is they made a small altar in the riverbed, and the other one is an altar next to the river made from stones they pulled out of the bottom of the river. The river! And... So, we have traveled to the far side of the Jordan in the Promised Land. So, what is the very first thing you do? Ready for battle, ready to conquer. You incapacitate all of your fighting men for about a month, immediately. The moment... See, they were safe on the far side of the Jordan. But now, they're on the other side of the Jordan. So, Jericho could potentially send an army out and kill everyone. They're not, they're not safe anymore. They're in the enemy territory. They set up camp at a place called Gilgal. And God tells Joseph to make many sharp knives. And he very carefully explains, you guys haven't been circumcising yourself as per our agreement, the agreement made with Abraham. God made an agreement with Abraham that children would all be circumcised. All the firstborn males on the eighth day would be circumcised. That's That was the sign of the covenant he made with Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The Israelites hadn't been doing it. They're wandering in the desert because they can't obey and for 40 years in the desert they still had not been smart enough to obey, apparently. So all of the men in the nation of Israel had to get circumcised. So an interesting thing, if you're with God, you're on his team, he will take disobedient people into the promised land. He chose Moses, called him and sent him, and then made sure that he had his children circumcised. Moses was in disobedience. He hadn't circumcised his kids. His wife had to do it. But God called Moses and sent him before that, while he was in a state of disobedience. God chooses us while we're still sinning, guys. He doesn't wait for you to get your act together. Doesn't matter where your act is, God's got you right now. So, get on the same page, get on his team, then worry about getting your act together. 
it, they both still need to happen, but priorities. Be on the right page. Be on the right team. Now. So, first up, they roll up onto Jericho. After Gilgal, everybody's sore and in pain. They finally, they heal up enough. Joshua says, all right, let's march out. And they do the, the, the good old story of Jericho. If you don't know about it, just watch the veggie details. It's pretty, pretty accurate. Pretty accurate stuff. It's the one where they march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times, blow their trumpets, wall crumbles. They wreck it. They save the lady. Nobody ran out of her house. So they run in. They take uh, the lady and her family out of their house. They set them on a, in, a, in their own camp outside of Israel. And they wreck the city. Then they make camp. Nobody's supposed to bring any spoils. God's like, look, everything is uh, sacrificed to destruction. It's devoted to destruction. Sacrifice it to me. Burn it. It's not yours. It's mine. Okay. Yes, sir. And then... Somebody gets greedy. I forget his name because he's not important. Idiot gets greedy. Swipes some stuff. Hides it in his tent. Because remember, tents don't have floors. It's just dirt. So he just digs a hole inside of his tent and hides it. So, not a big deal. They go on to the next city. Jericho's wrecked. It's a little city. Joshua says, hey, I don't know, send, send 2,000 men. We don't need everybody to go. Just send 2,000. Cool. 2,000 guys go. And they get their butt handed to them. They actually lose a couple hundred people. Or no, 50. Like 50 people die. Everybody freaks out. In a battle where you sent 2,000 men and you only lost 50 people and it's it's a panic to you, that's good casualty numbers if you're looking from a warfighter perspective. You only lost 50 out of 2,000? That's really good. You should have still conquered your objective. And yet, everybody freaked out. Like, they, this hasn't happened before. That strongly implies that they did not have a single casualty in any of their previous battles, which is mind-blowing. Well, unless you remember that, the Lord fought for them. So, they're sent running with their tail between their legs from I, and God looks at Joshua and says, hey, you got sin in the camp. That's why that happened. Joshua says, oh, man, all right. So they start casting lots. Lots are where you, uh, everybody writes their name on a tablet, a little, little tile. You put all the tiles in a jar, you lay the jar on its side, and you shake the jar slowly. And eventually, one of those tiles is going to fall out. Whichever one falls out first, that's the guy who gets chosen. So you can pick the tile up, see whose name is on it, that's the guy. The lot falls to Jeff, or whatever. So, what's up? They lot falls to the house, to the tribe, to the family house, the subgroup, to the, the subfamily, and then eventually to the guy himself by name. And Joshua's like, what'd you do, man? You ruined everything. And the guy says, I'm sorry, I hit a bunch of stuff in my tent. And Joshua says, that's too bad. We really like you, bud. 
And they kill him and his family. Then they burn the, the treasure as appropriate. It's harsh. But your choices as a father affect your family. For the good and for the bad. And there are consequences for actions. Consequences aren't always happy. So, they go back and now they conquer I. This time they're a little more strategic about it. Joshua sends more people. Now here's where it's interesting. Because the whole time God is giving them the strategy. The whole time God says, you need to go do this. I just realized I blew past it. Uh, there's a point where he's standing on a, a, a mountaintop, Joshua is, and a, an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, uh, Joshua says, are you for, the guy's holding a sword, Joshua immediately is like, are you for us or against us? And the guy's answer is, I am with you. I am the captain of the armies of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face, face and worships the angel. Which is interesting because every other time that happens, angels stop people from worshiping them. There's an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, in Joshua, and later in Judges, that accepts worship. And uh, from Gideon in uh, chapter 3, chapter 3 of Judges, accept sacrifice. 3, 4, 5 maybe? And he, he accepts sacrifices, which is, is crazy for an angel to do. Because they don't, everywhere else in the Bible, they don't accept them. You know, get up off your face, you know, stop, do not be afraid. Every time. This angel's just like, yeah, that's right. Good. Those are referred to as theophany, that's a big fancy word for it. It's uh, basically an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. It's also the foundation for what is referred to as the two powers, or the two powers in heaven. Uh, I Theology from Second Temple Judaism. Now you can look up uh, Dr. Heiser. H-E-I-S-E-R, and uh, Second Temple Judaism. And you'll, Second Temple, Two Powers, you'll Google enough, you'll find it. So, that's an important thing. So anyway, God's giving him his strategy, telling him what to do. And here, God does an actual battle strategy. So previously, he goes, hey, put all your weapons down, wander off into the desert, holding nothing but trumpets, and just walk around the city a bunch of times for like a week until the city falls down. And then take the city. You do something crazy and ridiculous, and then you you win. And then this time, God tells him exactly what to do, and it's really shrewd battle tactics and strategy. It's it's just fascinating to me that you would expect some consistency. Like every time God does something, it's crazy and ludicrous. And you go, why Why would you do that? And then it works out by God. Or uh, you would expect him to always do the most shrewd and clever thing. Always. And he just flip-flops. Doesn't matter. It's whatever gets the job done. I'm sure there's some message you could read into it and analyze the detail. But just in general, that's, that's kind of perplexing though. Because you could never fully blame the cleverness of man. And you could never fully blame dumb luck. Strikes me as interesting. So they go to I, and uh, what they do is they split their army in two. They've got one army in hiding, and so a smaller army goes out, lures the soldiers from the city, brings them out from the city a ways, and the larger army in hiding takes the city because all the soldiers left. 
Now that they have taken and spoiled the city, they turn around, and now this smaller army is surrounded by two bigger armies, and they collapse in the middle. Take them out. Same deal, they dedicate I to destruction. If I remember correctly, the word, the, the city name I means destruction anyway. He takes it out. <coughs> All of the locals are afraid now, just way, way afraid. And we get to the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites pull a con job. They're from this area. God specifically said, do not make a covenant with anybody that lives in the land. Kill everyone, chase everyone out, wreck it. Don't take slaves, throw everybody out. The Gibeonites know they're coming, they know what happens. They got brains like Rahab, and they said, all right, let's make some shabby camels. And they shabbied everything up, they got rough shoes, they got old nasty bread, they cover themselves in dirt, and come shambling out of the desert with nothing but moldy bread and beat up shoes. And they said, hey, we've heard about you awesome Israelites. We just want to be your servants. Can you make a covenant with us and, and help? We won't be a problem, we swear. We come from way far off. We don't even live here. And Joshua says, seems legit. They make a covenant. And then God says, hey, uh, you got conned, bud. Should ask me first. This is the probably the, the only mistake that Joshua makes right here is he got burned by the Gibeonites. Story checked out. Didn't think to ask God, who sees through, and he knows the devices and thoughts of men. And uh, Joshua missed out, bud. Not a huge deal. Not life-ending, not career-ending. And uh, God says, fine, Gibeonites are going to be your servants now. Their entire tribe, their entire nation for the rest of ever. And the Gibeonites were like, you know what? Cool. Beats being dead. All right. Uh, the downside is all of the locals found out the Gibeonites uh, flip traitor, and so they start attacking the Gibeonites. And Joshua's just like, ah, uh, we did make a treaty. We gotta go help them now. Guys, I can't even. So they roll out, and they start fighting, and they destroy all the bad guys. And all of the different battles all have this interesting edge to it, like Joshua holding out his spear until the enemy's defeated, uh, this is actually the battle, if I remember correctly, that the, uh, um, there's a, there's a couple battles that are starting to blur together in my head, but, uh, Joshua prays and calls for the sun to stand still, and in that battle, that might be this one, I'm fairly certain it's this one, but I don't want to commit, go read it yourself, this is just a primer to know what's in there, it's, it's crazy battle stuff, um, uh, God is fighting for Israel, God fought for Israel that day, and he's raining hailstones, from heaven on the enemy armies. And it said, hailstones killed more people than the sword that day. And God fought for Israel. And that's the that's the battle where uh, Joshua prays and has the sun stand, stand still. They don't have lights, guys. They don't have lamps or stuff. When it's dark, you're now just murdering in darkness. And there's no teams and everybody loses. So you got to keep some daylight. So he, he calls out to God and the sun stands still. So the battle can continue like an extra 24 hours. It's crazy stuff. Crazy, awesome stuff. And then you have the rest of the book. Burn, but don't pillage. They're taking over everything. Some towns are leveled entirely back into the dirt for no one to live in again. Uh, that's what he did with Jericho. He says, you know, may whoever rebuild this city do so at the cost of their firstborn. I think later one of the Herods rebuilds it. And the legend is that Herod had his, his firstborn son die. While he was rebuilding Jericho. 
uh, every other place, they, God gives specific instructions at each different town, you know, kill everyone, but keep the livestock, uh, kill everyone, kill the livestock, keep the buildings, you're fine. And, uh, most of them, they're allowed to keep the buildings. A few cities are entirely devoted to destruction is the phrase, uh, sacrifice to the Lord in like literal sense. They make the city unusable to anyone. And those cities, if you track the, the kings or the names of kings in other books, um, or expressly mentioned in other places like in Deuteronomy and such, they all happen to be cities where the Anakim live, where the giants are. There's some connection. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get into that more later. Um, and then the rest of the book, once they've done a, a ton of conquering, they, they conquer probably two-thirds, and uh, the rest of it, my notes say, draw a map already. Because the whole of it is, they don't have a map. They didn't draw it. They use words to describe verbally, or well written, you know, literally, literally, to describe every every border, and it's, so it's from this landmark down the border to this landmark, and up the border to this landmark, and over the border to this landmark, and that is the territory of so-and-so. And so they're, they're divvying up the land that they've conquered, and in, in the borders and stuff. And so what they do is they basically gave people land, and they go, oh, are, your tribe isn't going to fit in that small scrap of land? I guess you should go attack those Canaanites next to your land. Gad, Dan, go, come on guys. Oh, Dan, yeah, tribe of Dan. Dan, go get it. Judge, go judge them, Dan. And uh, so that's sort of the whole rest of the book is they're divvying up the land, it takes a long time because they can't draw. They don't draw maps. They they write it out, and then they keep at it. Right? They're, these are the places you have to now go and conquer. Uh, go get it, guys. It's all you. And finally, they conquer everything. Uh, there's some special passages where Caleb and Joshua get to take their own pieces of land. Caleb is terrifying. It's a terrifying old man because he's 80 and he's like, "I'm strong now as I was back then. The Lord's given me strength." I want the mountain covered in giants. That's the land I want. He gets to choose his own patch of land. He's like, I want the mountain covered in giants. Happens to be Jerusalem, oddly enough. And uh, Joshua, same deal. He picks him a patch of land, conquers it. So he, picks, he picks a patch of land that already has Canaanites on it that haven't been conquered yet. And he rolls up, wipes them out. And so now there's this sort of conclusion at the end of the book where we see, okay, Caleb and Joshua, they came in and got their inheritance in the land. We get some anecdotes about Caleb and his daughter divvying up land and doing stuff because uh, he has nothing but daughters, so he's trying to marry his daughters to, to husbands. Uh, and then the, the book really ends with Joshua, or his name in the original Hebrew, J-Train, telling the people of Israel, what's up? warning them. And so later, they can't say they didn't know any better. They know now. He takes the time to read the entire law. There is not a word that Moses wrote that Joshua did not read, is the, the exact phrase, I believe. He reads the entire Pentateuch to him. And says, alright, you guys stood here and listen to me read the entire Pentateuch to you. You get to know better now. Now you know better. And you can worship the pagan gods that Abraham's family worshipped back in the day. Or you can worship the pagan gods in the land that you live in. 
But my family, we're going to serve the Lord that just wrecked everybody. You just got done watching them wreck everybody for two generations now. Get your act together, people. And uh, that's that's where the book ends. And uh, so it goes on from there into uh, Judges is next, where the people of Israel are living in the land and uh, what they do and don't conquer, which is quite a bit. They leave a lot, a lot. They leave a lot missing. So, uh, issues with this book, there aren't many. Awesome. Got some random ladies walking by the car, dancing around as they walk the dog. That's awesome. Two, 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 two. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Anyway, uh, issues with the book. There, there are really only two like major issues, and the, well, two major categories of issues. One is, why are these people going to die? Why are you just murdering entire cities? right? Murdering entire cities? I, I think it's the Nephilim connection. Something about the, the line of the Nephilim that caused God to wipe out all of mankind in Genesis 6. If you read in Deuteronomy, the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, there's list after list of nations that were conquered by the nations of Lot and the nations of Esau. Um, these are the ancillary nations uh, that are, are taking over territory and killing all of the Nephilim that lived in those areas, which are the sons of Anak, which are the Anakim, or the Ammonites called them this, or the Moabites called them that, or the uh, Edomites called them that. Uh, the tribes of, of Lot are Ammon and Moab, and the tribes of uh, Esau is uh, Edomites, es- uh, Jacob's brother, Esau. And so they're uh, south of, uh, so yeah, you've got the Jordan River, You've got the Dead Sea, and then below the Dead Sea is the land of Edom, and then to the right is all the the Ammonites and the Moabites and stuff. Some of them got knocked off of their property by the Israelites because they were jerks about it. Edom was not. God said, that's the inheritance I gave them. So even though they're jerks, leave them alone. Um, But So that's why I think to kill. But in a bigger question, though, if God isn't real, why is killing wrong? It's the primary mechanism for the survival of the fittest and the primary mechanism for evolution in general. Why is killing someone wrong? You can't, you can't say that without some sort of moral authority higher than humans. Because otherwise it's my authority versus yours. Also, all humans, with, in a world where God does exist and humans have sinned, all sin is punishable by death. So every breath you take after your first sin, that's a grace. It's the grace of God. You deserve to drop dead instantly the moment you first sinned. And you didn't. So you're living on grace. And so when the God of this world declares that you're going to die, it doesn't matter if it's a car accident or the hand of someone else. You're dead. So that's that's how I read my Bible. And that's how I handle those issues. But it is an issue that you have to struggle with. And this is where all of the uh, godless heathens say that God is a lie because, look, he tells you to kill random people and women and children and stuff. Yeah, but he's God of this world. He made you. Your life belongs to him. And it has been appointed to all men to die once. doesn't matter, really, if it's in a tornado or a, a robbery or chosen people coming in and murdering your entire town because your town's full of degenerates. 
Uh, so, the other issue is historical stuff. A lot of people like to dig up the city of Jericho and point fingers and go, Oh, it's a lie because this, it's a lie because this, this is wrong, this is wrong. You know, it doesn't matter that there's an entire layer of ash in the strata when you dig down in the city of Jericho. There's an entire layer of nothing but crumbles and ash. Book of Joshua is wrong because we've dated the book of Joshua with our smart brains as much later than all of the historical information would imply. Because we suppose it had to have been written after the Babylonian exile because of our smart brains. No, we don't have any basis on it except our smart brains. Okay? Do it the way you will. Uh, There's other historical stuff. They'll point at any random city and say it's wrong because... It's always wrong because they say there's a mismatch in the dates and there's no way the Israelites could be here this early because that would mean we're wrong. That is 100% every argument they use for it. But once again, this is stuff for you to look up. The, uh, the, the magic words for it are Near Eastern, Ancient Near East, uh, Ancient Near Eastern Studies, and Biblical Archaeology. Those are the, the catchphrases that'll bring up specific archaeology for biblical things. Now, biblical archaeology, and to a lesser extent, but still quite a bit, of uh, ancient Near Eastern studies will bring up people who are in favor of the Bible and who believe the Bible, you know, actually happened and is historical. And so just to be aware that there may be that bias to the research, um, but also that Christians do research more objectively. That's a fact. I'm not going to qualify it. And I'm not going to give you proof for it. I'm just going to say it. It's a fact. All right. And uh, that's that's what I got for you. Uh, Joshua is a good book. It's kind of action-packed. It gets a little dry when you're doing the cities and the borders and stuff. So what I would recommend, if you are just going to brute force, read your way through Joshua, skip the map stuff and come back to it later when you have a better grasp of how the Holy Land is laid out, if you want. Or the better option I would recommend is just open a map on your phone or open... Um, don't, it's obnoxious to flip back and forth. So get like a printout or, you know, pull up a second Bible and open up a map of the Holy Land. You want the Old Testament Holy Land maps because you'd be really confused if you're looking at a map of Paul's missionary journeys. I'll do a whole thing on Bible maps if you want. They're, they're pretty straightforward. You can Google whatever you want nowadays though. Um, but anyways, just have a map of the promised land and where the Israelites, all the nations of Israel, uh, stuff are divvied up. You'll see it labeled in the top right corner of the kind of map you want. And then that way you can follow along as they're reading, oh, from this city to there, to the ocean. Oh, all right, and then there's the borderline, so they drew it on the map. All right, cool. And it, it helps you keep stuff straight in your head. Otherwise, they are names that are meaningless to you and directions for distances that are meaningless. So seeing that map helps put everything in perspective. You could cut the book in half if you just put a map in the back page of it, but yeah, it doesn't travel as well through, through time. So that's all I got for you. Also, I didn't have modern cartography methods, which is another issue. Anyway, that's all I got for you. Uh, You're awesome. Stay awesome. Do your own research. Don't take my word for it. And I will see you next time. Godspeed.